If you are uh, visiting here today, or if you've just been in and out of town a little bit over the summer, we are continuing and wrapping up a, a short preaching series that we've been doing on, on the means of grace. We, we've defined the means of grace as avenues uh, that God has given us to help us to grow spiritually, particularly to grow in our knowledge of Him and His saving work as we are actually we're seeking to have an active and present uh, relationship with Him. And just for a review, uh, we, we've identified the, the primary means of grace as the Word, the sacraments, and prayer, and these are all enhanced by regular fellowship uh, with other believers and receive particular significance uh, in the gathered uh, corporate worship of God's people. So today, as we finish up that series, we're, we're not going to exactly talk about the means of grace per se, uh, but the fact that the means of grace actually they need to be employed. Um, prayer isn't really prayer if you aren't actually praying. So we're going to be talking about what does it look like to, to persevere with the means of grace? What does it look like uh, to continue on in the Christian life? So with that in mind, uh, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews... What we've got printed in the bulletin is Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. But that's actually, it's sort of the conclusion of our long argument that the writer's been making. So I'm going to start reading just a little bit earlier. If you want to turn in your your Bibles, I'm going to start in chapter 11, verse 29, and then read all the way through. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 29. By faith... The people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured Refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And now chapter 12, that's what's printed in your bulletin. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, it is our great privilege to come into your presence, uh, into to Mount Zion and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to sing your praises, but also to hear from you. I pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of the word this morning, that by your spirit you would, you would press it down into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of you know uh, that I have four children. Uh, our, our, our oldest is working in the nursery, taking care of our youngest right now, and our middle two are sitting over here uh, with my wife, Nan. And for the most part, it is just a great, it's just a great joy uh, to have four kids. Yesterday, I got to see our, our two-year-old hold a racquetball racket like a guitar and beg his seven-year-old brother to sing with him. And, you, you know, you just don't get to see those kind of things when you don't have four kids. It's really fun. I love especially to see the excitement on their faces when they find, you know, a new bug in the backyard or uh, when, when Jeremy Patat gives them a stuffed fox squirrel to take home and put on the shelf in their room. They're, the joy on their faces, it's just a fun to be a part of, and we have a lot of fun in our house. But if you've got children, you, you also know that it's not, it's not without trial uh, to have children. Uh, in particular, four children means my wife uh, has been pregnant for 36 months of her life. And apparently, for some women, this is a little bit uncomfortable for a few months, but for my wife, it tends to be uncomfortable. Uh, uncomfortable is kind of a nice word. Uh, a lot of poor sleep, uh, discomfort, and nausea uh, the entire time. Um, so, I asked her permission to tell you this, but every pregnancy, Nan has said some version of, buddy, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> now, it puts me kind of in a tough spot, <laughs> because she's telling me that she can't do what I know that she must do, um, and of course, I knew that she would do, and she did, and we love, we love our children dearly. Uh, but to have these four children, Nan had to keep pressing on. Um, in a manner of speaking, the, the joy was at the finish line. It was not really in the pregnancies uh, themselves. So I, I bring all that up because I, I personally know several of you uh, are very weary. And I can only imagine uh, that means many more of you that I don't know uh, are also uh, very weary. Some of you are facing, facing circumstances where maybe you're just discovering that your life is much more difficult uh, than you ever anticipated that it would be. Perhaps that's financial, or, or it could be physical, or emotional, or just in, in your relationships. Maybe, maybe, maybe some of you high schoolers or college students in particular are just discovering uh, that the social pressure on Christianity is just growing deeper and deeper. And in, in that weariness, you find that the world is offering you a completely different set of solutions. And you might get to the point where you say, you know, I just can't do that anymore. For some of you, 
weariness brings with it a, a temptation perhaps even just to reject the faith. You probably even know some people who have done that, but I imagine, I imagine for most of you, the temptation is not to reject it outright, but to sort of give Christianity uh, like a seat at the table. You can kind of, it's there, but it's not the main thing, and you begin to find meaning and significance in the things of the world, so that rather than living a life of profound dependence on Jesus alone, you begin to want to live a life that you say, quote, works for you. And if Christianity fits in, well, that's okay too. Well, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is written to a group that was tempted to turn back. They were growing weary simply of the difficulties of being Christians in the first century. They were tempted to turn back uh, to their Jewish heritage. That, that's perhaps in, in replacement of their Christianity, but most likely just in addition to their Christianity, finding some kind of comfort in the external trappings of their old religion. And what the writer of Hebrews is at pains to say for nine and a half chapters is Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses and Joshua. He's better than Aaron. He's better than the whole Old Testament priestly system. And when you get to the second half of chapter 10, he says, so you must press on. You have to keep going. You have to endure to the end, not with additions to Jesus, but by faith in Jesus alone. And in chapter 10, verse 36, he says, you have need of endurance so that you may receive what is promised. And then, of course, in in chapter 11, which I read part of, you have this great list of all those who have endured by faith. And when you get to our passage, you have this final call to endurance. And that's what, I, that's what I want us to talk about this morning. I want us to talk about the nature of Christian endurance. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I just want you to know I'm not, I'm not talking about what does it look like to become a Christian, but what does it look like to stay a Christian? What is endurance? How does it work? We're going to talk about three aspects of that. We'll look at the nature of Christian endurance, the preparation for endurance, and then finally we'll look at the means of endurance. How, how is it that we endure? So first, the nature. Uh, you see right away that the writer compares endurance uh, to a long-distance race. Um, he says in verse 1, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance or endure is mentioned three times just in these three verses. Some older versions might translate it patience. Uh, newer versions, and I think more accurately, will we'll tend to translate it either perseverance or endurance. But, but the idea here is a long-term, resolute determination. Christian life is not a sprint, and you need to be okay being a plotter. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek word here for, for race is agona. It's where we get our word agony. Uh, the whole idea is that there is going to be a lot of effort in the race. And it goes without saying, of course, that we don't want to drop out of the race, but we're actually to make every effort to finish it and to finish it well, in spite of whatever hardship, exhaustion, and pain come our way. 
The writer earlier said, in, in, again, in the end of chapter 10, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith to preserve their souls. So perseverance, endurance, is not an escalator rod. It's never, it's never static, but it's always active, as, as you've probably heard Hal say many times. You are always either moving toward Christ or away from him. Uh, the past several weeks, as, as we've been going through the means of grace, uh, so we've used some question and answers from our larger and shorter catechism as our confession of faith. I, ho- I hope that's been helpful to you. Um, but shorter catechism 85 asks about the requirements for escaping God's wrath and curse due to us for sin. This comes right before the section on the means of grace in the shorter catechism. I, I, it's a great answer, but I, I think that it might surprise some of us to hear this. Um, but again, it's asking about what are the requirements to escape God's wrath and the curse that's due to us for sin. And the answer is faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. You see, it's, it's not enough just to sign up for the marathon. Uh, we have to run. Are you, are you running? The other thing we see about endurance here is the image that the writer is giving us is that it takes place uh, in an arena. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. The imagery is of a stadium that is filled. It's filled with the people that he's listed off in chapter 11. These are people who have endured by faith. In this race, you're actually surrounded by cheers and encouragement. The people in chapter 11, they are examples, but not of moral victory. Many, many, of, many of them did awful things. Um, but they are examples of what it looks like to have faith in what they could not see. They're not, they're not so much witnesses to our race as though they're watching us to see if we're going to finish. Uh, but they, they are witnesses to God's faithfulness to bring them to the end. They bear testimony to the goodness and the possibility of endurance. They are shouting, it is worth it, as they stand on the other side of the finish line. But of course, again, if, if there to be any kind of encouragement to us at all, we, we need to be running the same race, same race that they ran. It's, it's a long-distance race, but there is an arena of encouragement around us. So I want to talk just a minute about the preparation for the race. Uh, again, in verse 1, the writer says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Uh, the picture is fairly obvious. Uh, If you are going to run, you are going to have to get rid of the extra weight. Uh, You can can picture an athlete walking up to the starting line and and removing his warm-up gear. But the imagery here is actually actually a little more stark than that. Uh, The imagery here is of the Greek games, and the original audience would have immediately thought of a runner uh, stripping completely naked before he ran the race. Now that that might sound a little embarrassing or, or maybe, even, maybe even a little dangerous. Um, 
But the point is that the runner would get rid of everything that was secondary to finishing this race. Of course, you don't have to get naked to be a Christian. Are, is everybody listening? Okay. Now you're listening. Okay. You don't have to be naked to be a Christian. The point is you have to get rid of everything that gets in the way. He doesn't mean anything specific here. He's saying you need to take off whatever gets in the way of slowing, or whatever would slow you down, however, however good or acceptable it might seem in some other context. And you notice here, he, he actually draws a distinction between every weight and the sin which clings so closely. That means that you may have to throw off things uh, that are legitimate, that might not be inherently sinful, but yet would hinder you from this race. It could be, it could be money. It could be uh, your own family or just your desire for comfort. Uh, it, is, it is one thing to have a season of time where you maybe, you, maybe you scale back on your church commitments so that you can spend a little more time uh, with your family. But it's, you know, it's another thing entirely to permanently disregard service in the church because your lifestyle and what you want for yourself just doesn't have any room for it. And the writer is saying, you need to set those things aside. And you may be thinking already, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with X? What's wrong with, what's wrong with me working uh, a few more hours? I mean, I'm supposed to provide for my family. What's wrong, what's wrong with me wanting to take care of my health? I mean, I'm supposed to care for my body, right? But asking what's wrong is almost always the wrong question. Christians or to ask, how will this help me in the race? How is this going to help me know and love and serve my Lord Jesus? So that Paul could say in Philippians 3, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. There's nothing inherently wrong with a tuxedo. But if you wore it to a race, everyone would know you weren't really there to finish. At the very least, it would get in your way, but it also just might reveal that, that you weren't really even there for the race. You were there for something else. And of course, the writer also says we do need to cast off sinful things. And again, he's, he's, not, he's not concerned with any particular sin, but sin itself. He says that it, it clings so closely. You see, the point is that sin readily hinders the race. Sin is an inherent obstacle. It is never neutral, but it's always dragging you down. And an unwillingness, an unwillingness to throw it off simply reveals that this race is not really a top priority for you. And Jesus says we need to watch and pray and search out for every sin so that we might cast it off. Uh, several years ago, a friend of mine's brother was invited to play in a pro-am golf tournament. Uh, a pro-am is where, where a, sound, just like what it sounds, an amateur and a, and a professional get paired up together and they play a tournament together. It's usually for charity or something like that. And this is in the early 2000s, and my friend's brother got paired with Tiger Woods in this pro-am. 
Uh, this is, uh, at least at the time, Tiger was, he was basically the undisputed best golfer in the world. And my friend's brother, of course, he was really excited. You know, maybe he's going to, maybe he'll be friends with Tiger. Who knows what's going to happen, right? Uh, well, so at the second hole, Tiger has about a 25-foot putt, which is a pretty long putt for me. Uh, for me, I'm just hoping that I don't three-putt. I want to leave it kind of close. I'm not even really trying to make it. It's a really long putt. So Tiger hits it within about two inches. And my friend's brother says, hey, nice putt. And he turns and looks at him. He hadn't said anything the whole time. And he says, that's why you're an amateur. <laughs> and they didn't talk the rest of the tournament. <laughs> so my point is not that you need to be a jerk for Jesus. <laughs> uh, but that if you're not... Actually, if you're not growing in love and patience and kindness, uh, you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. Uh, but the point is, Tiger actually is a, a really great example of someone who was willing to throw off everything that wasn't about his goal, including, including making friends that day. He wasn't really there to make friends. Uh, in fact, he, uh, his devotion uh, to winning led to losing his marriage, and most of his other friendships, too, later in life. But he was about one thing so that he knew he had to cast off everything else so that he could focus. So what sins, what sins are dragging you down? Maybe, maybe they're things that you can't even see anymore or that, or that you think others can't see, so you've begun to think, they're not that big of a deal, and you just carry them in your pocket all along the race and say, you know, this porn isn't really hurting anyone else. Or maybe they've just become part of your personality. So you say, well, you know, I'm just a worrier. Oh, I just, you know, I get angry. I get angry sometimes. What are the things that you are hanging on to? What inappropriate attire have you brought to the race? Is there anything that is dragging you? And really, I, I already know that there are things, <laughs> I already know that there are things that are dragging you down. There are many things that are dragging me down. But the real question is, what is it that is keeping you? What's keeping us from throwing those things aside? Have you made, have you made great sacrifices in other areas of your life? Will you wake up early to go to work and to do CrossFit, but you can't make it to Sunday school? I don't have anyone in particular in mind when I say that, by the way. None of you come to Sunday school, so it's okay. Um, the sacrifices that we are willing or not willing to make, they reveal the things that we love. We can only really say all other ground is sinking sand when we're willing to set aside whatever hinders us in the race. So if you're prepared for endurance, uh, you need to see how to, actually, how to actually run the race. If, you, if you've shown up 
and you're starting to consider setting aside all these hindrances, how is it that you are going uh, to run? What are the means? What are the means of endurance? Well, verse 2, the writer says that we endure by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you see, it is, it is wonderfully and beautifully simple that we endure the same way we began. We endure by looking to Jesus. Not the list in chapter 11. I've already mentioned many of them ran poorly. Uh, not by looking to the rewards that this world has to offer, or even your own efforts, or your own accomplishments. The language here is emphatic. It's literally that we are fixing our eyes on him. And then it's repeated in verse 3, that we are to consider him. This is an active gazing upon Jesus. Not not a one-off thought. Not something that you do when the crisis comes. Not something that you did one time at youth camp, however important that may have been, but it is a whole way of living. It is the way of endurance, looking to Jesus. An athlete has to be fixated on a goal. And unlike Tiger Woods, our goal to be with Jesus actually shapes the rest of our lives so that we become more like Jesus. So setting aside all distractions, we look to him alone. To run the race well is to fix your eyes on him. And this is, friends, this is just what the means of grace are for. They are not to try to help you feel a certain way, but to remind you of what's true. To help you to look away from everything that competes with him and find your hope in him alone. And this is hope not just uh, not in a generic Jesus, not in the idea of Jesus, but actually the writer has some very specific things that you need to fix your eyes on, that he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, as the founder, is the author and the forerunner and the pioneer. You see, he is the example. He is the first to ever endure this kind of race perfectly all the way to the end. Of course, he endured the cross, the physical pain that went along with it, and the wrath of God for all our sins. And verse 2 says he despised the shame. Now, this doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that he overlooked the shame, but that the shame he would experience was not worth being taken into consideration as he contemplated his obedience to the Father all the way to the end. It's not that the shame wasn't real, but the shame, too, needed to be thrown to the side. John Calvin said that Jesus' whole life was nothing but a sort of perpetual cross. He took on flesh for us. He was born an illegitimate child. He grew up in a town with a bad reputation, and he experienced more pain humility and disgrace than you or I will ever know. 
but he finished. He is also the perfecter, the finisher, the completer. You see, Jesus brought faith to its goal in accomplishing what no one else had ever accomplished. He actually allows us to run the race. He's not only the first to run the race, but the one who finished it for all of God's people. And actually, there's just, there's just a lot to understand here in these few verses. This is really the culmination of a lot of ideas that have been building in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but there's one, thing, there's one thing in particular I just want us to see. Why, why would he do this? Why would the Son of God go through all of these things? And the writer says it was for the joy that was set before him. His joy was to be at the Father's right hand. That might sound a little bit mysterious. But to be at the Father's right hand meant that his joy was a shared joy. We see in verse 3, he endured so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In John 17, in the middle of what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, he prays to the Father that they, that is his sheep, he says that they might have my joy. And that God's right hand is the position from which he ever lives to intercede for us, and to bring us into God's presence. Jesus is still there. And there is absolute security for those who will put their hope in him. And in in case I've been unclear, too, we just need to know that while Jesus' joy was as he contemplated his future, to be seated at the right hand, and to intercede for us, not all of our joy is entirely future. Of course, our great hope is in His return and in our own future resurrection when we will be glorified. But Jesus has sent His Spirit to unite us to Him now in His resurrection. So that in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 1, Paul can say that if you are united to Him, you are presently seated with him by faith. Jesus doesn't want you to be weary. He had every reason to quit, but he endured so that you would not grow weary. Not not so that you wouldn't have to do anything, but so that you could endure. So that you could know that endurance was possible and worth it. He knows that the world is a hard place. He knows it more than we do. But he wants you to look to him, to hope in the things that you cannot see. And if you, if you are united to him, then you are united to the one who ran well, the good and faithful servant, the one who defeated sin and death and Satan. And there will be a day when we no longer endure, but we live by sight, and we will know that it was worth it. All our hope is in his finished work and his continued intercession for us, not in our own efforts, 
not in our good intentions. We endure because He carries us on. He perfects our faith. Jesus has run the race. He is the one who has set the race before us. And at the right hand of the Father, He intercedes to bring us to the finish line. Let us all put our hope in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are glorious truths from your word. I pray that you would make them more glorious to us. I pray that you would continue to help us to look away from the world, look away and cast off everything that hinders us, and to learn to fix our eyes on your glorious Son who died and was resurrected for our sins. We pray these things in his name. Amen.